This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The mascots for about 30 schools in Colorado are figures of American Indians using names like the Savages and the Warriors. Last fall, the governor launched a listening tour to hear from communities that still use these emblems. We'll hear about its conclusions shortly. But first, CPR's Jenny Brundine takes us to one stop on the commission's tour, the rural community of Eaton, north of Greeley, where the mascot is the Fightin' Reds. Eaton High School's mascot is plastered in the middle of the gym floor, on the walls, on students' uniforms. It's a cartoon-like image of an American Indian. It's got a big nose and the loincloth. That's junior Sarah Jekyll. And then... His eyes are bigger. And that's junior Devin McKenney. And he is in an aggressive stance. Devin and Sarah write for the school newspaper, The Red Ink. Carolee Cothey is the paper's editor. What was really interesting to me is that the mascot only came into existence in the 60s. For like over 50 years prior to that, we were just the E. The letter E mascot lost out to a nationwide trend of Indian mascots that became all the rage in the 50s and 60s. Today, Eaton's mascot is still pretty popular. At an after-school track practice, Dalton Walm tells me why. It brings everyone together, and we have something to focus on, and it's something that keeps our school almost together. Red Ink staffers surveyed teachers and found more than half of them wanted to keep it. A survey of students found 68% didn't find it offensive. For newspaper editor Kara Lee, though, the more research she did, the more personal it became. Native Americans were persecuted for so many years. And like the Sand Creek Massacre was just a few hours away from here where like hundreds were slaughtered. And for us to have the nerve to continue having the mascot, I don't know, it just like, it hurts in the soul. Not all her news staff agree with her, but they all agreed on being open-minded as they looked into the issue. Staff reporter Cameron Mosier understands how criticism of sports mascots can be a prickly issue in a small town. Since it's so small... You're so close to it, it feels like more of an attack on you as a person than on the mascot or something abstract. Red Ink editor Kara Lee thought the town needed to talk about it more. And when she heard about the governor's commission on Indian mascots, she got on the phone and invited them to Eaton. I thought, what a great opportunity to have them come here and discuss this with our town because everybody just doesn't want to say anything about it. It's like we just need to open the door. The night the commission members arrive, the students first give them a tour of the gym. Tyson Thompson is a member of the Southern Ute tribe. Thompson stands next to an image of the mascot on the wall. Does he look like me? The two freshmen escorting him seem too embarrassed to answer, but they're eager to learn. They chat, and he gently explains that Native Americans find placing the image on the gym floor offensive, especially as it depicts the feather, a sacred symbol to many. It tells a a history of who we are. So we would never put that on the floor because you're walking on them. Yeah. Soon after, the forum starts. Commission co-chair Darius Smith is Navajo and explains why these types of mascots are often offensive. It romanticizes, it shows natives as just stoic noble savages, as wooden museum Indians. He gives a timeline of Colorado high schools that have abandoned mascots or... They transform their school's negative, stereotypical Indian mascot into a positive, respectful depiction. Many in the community are anxious to have their turn at the mic. Military veteran Stan Snow coaches one of the children's soccer teams. He describes one game where they were down three goals, but... I have never seen a more determined bunch of young players. 
because they were behind their mascot and they were eating red warriors. Snow doesn't see the mascot as derogatory. Please, please, don't take it away from them. Most of the older adults in the crowd agree with him. It's the younger ones, the students, like football player Brady Sturdivant, who don't. We embrace that warrior spirit, but we don't have to embrace that Indian persona. No real plan of action emerges, at least tonight. As the stage is being cleared, I ask Red Ink's editor, Carol Lee, how she feels. Bittersweet. I'm sure a lot of people learned a lot of things they did not know before about Native Americans, about our mascot. But I'm also just sad. Because she believes most of the older people there weren't willing to see a different perspective. But she says she's proud of her staff for hosting the forum and still proud of the town she was raised in. CPR's Jenny Brundine there. And now to another school dealing with this issue, the Strasburg High Indians, east of Denver. They recently formed a partnership with the Northern Arapaho, and tribal Jeff Rasp is on the governor's commission sorting through the mascot issue. Rasp joins us now with Ben Ridgely from the Northern Arapaho tribe in Wyoming. Jeff, the mascot commission presents its report to the governor today. You recommend eliminating the use of American Indian mascots, imagery, names, and quote, particularly those that are clearly derogatory and offensive. Do you want to see that happen with a new law mandating the names change or something less forceful? Well, I think we've already tried the route of a law um, that was kind of what got us into this process as well. Um, Representative Salazar's law was, I think, very good intentioned, but the the problem was it was forcing it upon communities that either weren't ready to reconsider their um, mascot or didn't have the funds available. There were so many complications that went with it. Right. Salazar's bill did not become law. Right. Right. So we – the whole commission's approach was instead of kind of force-feeding it was to go to communities, present different points of view, present the aspect of – um, why mascots can be considered offensive and harmful, but also to listen to the communities because they have very strong traditions in there as well. As we heard in Jenny's piece. And so is it that you want more districts, more schools to follow the route that Strasburg did? And that is forming a partnership, perhaps in your case with the Northern Arapaho, who gave their blessing to using the name Indians in Strasburg. Is, is that what you're hoping to encourage? Certainly. I think... What, in a nutshell, what we've talked about and discussed is that if it's if their mask if a mascot is clearly derogatory, offensive, it has no place in our public schools or in our communities. Okay, but clearly offensive, right? That's up for debate. That's what we saw in the debate over that bill and what we heard in Jenny's piece. So that that's not cut and dried. No, it's not, and it's really. It's a matter of each community or maybe others taking a fresh look at it and saying, is this a caricature, is it a stereotype, or is it not? So do you want to at least, I guess, mandate consultation? Definitely. Um, Part of our recommendations is that if you do decide to keep a mascot, and 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 currently we are, we feel ours is respectful and and authentic, then, then you do take that extra step of entering into a partnership with a tribe. And would schools face costs associated with that? Possibly. 
Um, uniforms at some point may have to be changed. Um, for instance, we have a, a drawing on our gym floor that if there's one thing we could try to change right away, that would be it. But that's going to be a costly, time-consuming measure, and it's not going to happen overnight. We'll talk about efforts to redraw your mascot in Strasbourg in just a bit. But to Ben, do you think it's important as a member of the Northern Arapaho tribe to eliminate all of these mascots? Or are there some that do seem to honor your community in your mind? Yes, I uh... I uh, believe that uh, what Jeff spoke, uh, is just the way we're kind of focusing it right now because uh, a lot of the names here uh, have, are very uh, meaningful and they're respectful and then in a good manner. They, um, I believe schools sometimes use that for their pride and their strength of um, their school's uh, spirit, you know. And so in that way, you believe if districts and if schools proceed mindfully and perhaps with input from uh, various nations that you think there can be a place for these? Sure. I I believe that uh, communication, collaboration on these issues would, you know, really come forth. And uh, what Jeff mentioned there, that he hit it just right, you know, we, they have to get an understanding. And also, I guess, a good um, lesson from the tribe or whoever they want to uh, maintain their um, mascot or the name of uh, what they're using in their school. Can I ask you specifically about the name Savages, which, again, is true in in one school. Does that name bother you, or do you think there's Uh, a way to to say Savages respectfully? Well, um, the way we interpreted it, we have our St. Creek Massacre uh, project just uh, north of uh, Lamar in to us, we felt it was a little bit offensive because that was uh, kind of a name that, you know, didn't really blend in with the society today. And and in the past, you know, maybe, you know, we were depicted as that understanding, but it's a misunderstanding for our tribal people, you know, from our tribe anyway. I can't speak for the others, but uh, kind of a little bit, a little bit harsh, you know. Right, so you wouldn't apply this standard to all names necessarily, and you and your brother, as I understand, have worked with the state of Colorado to memorialize, as you said, the Sand Creek Massacre. That's when the Colorado militia attacked an Arapaho and Cheyenne camp on the Eastern Plains. More than 160 people died. Do you see parallels between that memorializing work and the work on the mascot issue? Well, um, yes, it's a very sensitive issue, uh our St. Creek project there in uh, Eads, Colorado, it, it has a lot of meaning and sacredness in it. And, uh, you know, I think that it uh, also correlates um, a lot of the issues that are present today with what's coming up on these uh, issues with mascots and names that, um, you know, can be interpreted by what uh, Jeff mentioned in the communities. So. But, uh, you know, we're... We're we're pretty proud people of Native Americans, and you know we're the first Americans here, and but we still honor to be Americans today, you know. And it sounds like this is an opportunity to teach history in many ways. I want to say then that you and your brother Eugene uh, helped redraw the Strasburg High School mascots. Eugene especially told us he wanted it to be less cartoonish. Um, and so, for example, he made the nose smaller. And you can see for yourself the transformation that occurred at cprnews.org. 
Jeff, the commission that you were a part of, this governor's commission, went to the community of Lamar to talk specifically about the Savage's nickname. Did you change any minds or did people stay on the side where they had begun? That's a good question. I don't know if we changed any minds. I think we made people reconsider and revisit what their mascot meant and 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 maybe show them a side that it, it potentially is such a harmful um, depiction. Well, uh, as the commission saw there and also in Eaton, in the northeast part of the state, uh, which has the nickname Reds, um, some people are very passionate about keeping these mascots and strongly believe that they honor American Indians instead of being derogatory. And we heard this as well from Levita, Colorado, a little over a year ago. There, the mascot is the Redskins. Here's Levita resident Bobby Andrietta. It's just people that had a lot of pride, and they were treated dirty. And so, you know, to me, we're representing the people that fought for their nation. So as you said, Ben, you think that there can be a place in which the mascots do reflect something uh, that is kind and accurate. I want to say that none of this conversation would be happening in Strasbourg if it weren't for the student body secretary, Lindsay Nichols, and I'm pleased to welcome her to the show. She is also a member of the Governor's Commission. Lindsay, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. How did this conversation get started? What... uh, What got you talking about it? Uh, The legislation that was proposed last March. It was the spring of my junior year when they, um, Representative Salazar proposed the bill to eliminate Native American mascots, and it did not pass. And so that kind of sparked my interest, but I've always had an interest in Native American history and culture. Ever since I've been little, I've had a passion for it. I've read books. I've watched documentaries. And as I got to high school and I saw that legislation, I realized that we don't learn a lot about Native American culture in our school. And I think that's really important because a lot of tribes used to live where Strasbourg is and our mascot is the Indians. And we don't even learn about the specifics of the tribes and their their culture and their history here. And so that's kind of what got me started into it. We contacted tribal representatives like the Ridgelys, who have been an amazing help to us. They've been They've been great. They've changed my perspective and... They've been amazing to work with. How have they changed your perspective? So again, Strasbourg worked very specifically with this tribe from Wyoming to start a conversation. What changed about your perspective? As learning about Native Americans in schools, you kind of see them as a thing of the past. You see them as a picture in a history book, as people who hunted buffalo and lived in teepees and all of that. But they're they're living, breathing people, and they live here in our communities, and there are a lot of urban Native Americans, and they want to be heard about their issues today. And so that's what really changed my perspective about making a partnership with who they are today and not who they were in back in the 1800s. All right. So this was an issue that started with you, and I love that you were monitoring the legislature, and apparently the status of this bill, you had your eyes on the state capitol. And then how did you set about convincing other students that this was an issue, that this is something they should pay attention to? We started having advisories about it. We would have, we would um, display short videos. We would talk to them about the Arapahoe and Cheyenne, where the prominent tribes here. We talked about the Sand Creek Massacre. And then when the commission started, that's what really started getting the community and the students involved. We had the commission come out. The very first meeting was at Strasburg High School. 
And I think it changed a lot of the minds of the students who never really thought about our mascot. And it just opened their minds about it and made them realize, well, is our mascot authentic? Is it offensive? And so that's what started it. Were there students who were unconvinced then and remain unconvinced now that it's a problem? I think that there always will be some people who are unconvinced because there's no objective right or wrong answer that people will believe if it's right or wrong, if all mascots should be eliminated, if some are okay, if partnerships are okay. And I think there's a lot of students who think that we should keep it no matter what, even if we didn't have a partnership. But I think we definitely have changed a lot of the minds of the community members that the partnership is the biggest um, factor right now. Just briefly, Jeff, I understand that Strasburg High has a painting on the gym floor, just like Eaton in Jenny's story. Um, are you going to be covering that up when the Arapaho visit later this week? Well, that's a good question. I'd like to talk to Ben about that specifically. Um, well, we, let's, let's do it right yeah, here. Ben, ben. Ben, would you like to see the gym floor covered up or what? No, it's it's okay. It's uh, There's going to be a change and then, you know, it'll happen and... You know, we understand, you know, that uh, what your, your guys' intent is, and we believe that uh, working together, we can focus on uh, betterment of what how both parties want to uh, uh, go forward with um, that mascot issue, you know. It's been a pleasure to speak with the three of you. Ben Ridgely represents the Northern Arapaho tribe and lives in Wyoming. He'll be in Colorado later this week. Jeff Rasp is principal of Strasburg High School east of Denver. And Lindsay Nichols is student body secretary there. We will be right back with what Columbia's former drug czar thought he might learn from Colorado. This is CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Tomorrow, the United Nations will hold its first special session on drug policy in 18 years. In the past, the U.S. has been a strong voice for drug prohibition. But something's different this time around. Colorado and other states have legalized recreational marijuana. And now other countries want to try as well. Julian Wilches is the former drug czar of Colombia. He's part of a delegation that came to Colorado to talk drug reform ahead of this big U.N. meeting. What does Colombia have to learn from marijuana legalization here in Colorado? All right. For Colombia, it's very important. And for several sectors in my country, it's very important to get to know different experiences and to share our experience in Colombia. We, we have been having a lot of assassinations, uh, dead people, almost 100,000 in the last 15 years. We're having a war because of drugs. When you say dr- war on drugs, we're having it. Well, and I think a lot of people do associate Colombia with the drug cartels and the cocaine trade. Can you paint us a picture of what that trade has done to your country? Sure. We are the main producers of cocaine in the world. So we produce almost 500 tons per year. Half a million of people are involved directly in the business of, of cocaine. It's a $80 billion uh, business. And my country, especially, we have invested $100,000 in the last 15 years. So it looks like a really bad situation when, when your enemy is, is having a lot of more money than you are. So what we have been doing is uh, following the rules, going back the book, and it's not working for sure. So probably it's time to look for alternatives. 
So you're looking at the way Colorado has legalized marijuana and thinking you might be able to transfer that to a policy you could apply to cocaine in Colombia. Is that what you're saying? Probably. It's, it's about experimentation. I mean, we have been doing the same thing for 50 years and it's not we're, we're not reaching our goals. So probably it's time to look for another alternatives and following some models of Colorado or Washington. We have to try different, these different solutions because while we are talking about here, people is dying in my country because of the, the bad policies we have. I mean, drugs have negative effects under the health of the, of the people and public health. But bad policies have even worse effects on people. Because people is dying because of the prohibition more than, than because of drugs itself. In terms of legalizing a drug, Colorado is doing that here. But there still remains this black market for marijuana. There are, are worries that young people are smoking and ingesting pot in ways that could hurt their cognitive development. Do you think drug reformers are overselling legalization as a silver bullet? No, and you're right. That's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve the whole problem, but it's going to reduce it. A former president of Colombia, Cesar Gaviria, says that it's not about good policies when you're talking about drugs. It's having the less worst policy because it's going to be better. And probably it's not going to get worse than the prohibition that we have right now. I want to confirm that right now there is no plan in your country to legalize cocaine. No, no right. plans. But there is thinking outside the box that what Colorado is doing in terms of legalizing a once illegal drug could have some benefits in your country. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it is not a simple solution. It's not like a silver bullet, as you say, like, let's legalize it and all the problems go away. No, it, it represents a lot of smart people thinking on that, big teams of scholars and academics thinking on how to do it well, because... Half a million of people working in cocaine today, that's a lot of people outside the law. And we must bring it into a development process and a building process of our country and our democracy. So it is not a simple solution, Nathan. Now, in terms of legalizing, let's say, uh, uh, cocaine or, or marijuana uh, recreationally in your country, wouldn't that just embolden the, the cartels to be, OK, we can just flip a switch and we'll be legal? Great. I guess I'm still confused about how this would be different. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And, and probably not, Nathan, because actually a drug dealer won't, have, won't like to legalize cocaine because then the profit is because of the prohibition, not because of the cocaine itself. So maybe when you legalize that, you're going to drop down the prices, then it's not going to be that profitable as it is right now. And yeah, probably some of them will will just go to the legal side of the of the business. Probably others don't. But as I said, we're in the worst situation. Probably it's not going to get worse. It can only get better. So my my personal position is just to try. I mean, why not? What policies here in Colorado would you possibly be taking back to Colombia in, in terms of uh, legalizing <clears throat> drugs in your country? First question that you have to that you have to answer is who is going to manage the business? So you can put the spotlight in the in the government as Uruguay did. Mm -hmm. For example, Uruguay has a monopoly of the of the business and it's very different from what you have in Colorado. In Colorado you privatized. So that's a big question because on that depends a lot of things in inside the country. And probably in Colombia then you have to privatize it. 
because we don't have a, a very strong state or a very strong government and we are not able to control many things. I mean, we can't control tobacco. I mean, we have a lot of diversification of tobacco and many other things, guns, a, lo a lot of things going, going through the borders. So probably we, we don't have a strong state to make it inside the government. So one thing we can learn from different models is how to do it from the private sector, but being a democratic process and not ending having big companies, international companies managing the business in Colombia. Julian, how do you think marijuana legalization here might influence that conversation? It influenced the, the foreign policy of the United States. But actually, I don't think that this meeting in April, the Ongas 2016, is going to change many things. Mm. Almost 20 years ago, 18 years ago, the world decided to put this goal. In 20 years, the world is going to be free of any drug. And we are where we are. So more consumption, more drugs, different drugs, new psychoactive substances. So it seems like incredible that like seeing that and, and, and knowing that kind of evidence, you can't expect different results if you keep doing the same thing. So the position of the United States is very important, but it, The United States are not leading a, a, a reform in the international level. They are just more flexible, more flexible than many countries as China or Russia or actually many countries of Latin America as Peru, for example. So do you think that there could be possibly a new treaty on international drug policy coming out of, of these discussions? No, I don't think so. No. In 2019, there, there's going to be a new meeting. But as long as we have these radical positions so if Russia and China and other countries, then there's not going to be a new, a new, a new treaty. What can happen is that nobody cares about those treaties. Probably as Uruguay, they have legal recreational marijuana in Uruguay and nothing happened. And actually, you have legal marijuana for medical purposes in 24 states in the United States or in four states you have recreational marijuana as a legal thing. So probably the states are just going to don't care about the international treaties because if the international system doesn't respond to the needs of the countries, then countries are going to just leave the international treaties as something not useful. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Julian Wilches used to be Colombia's drug czar. He came to Colorado to see how this state legalized recreational marijuana. His visit preceded a U.N. special session on drug policy that starts tomorrow. Wilches spoke to CPR's Nathan Heffel. Still to come, the Denver band Devotchka adds its Baltic flavor to the musical Sweeney Todd. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The demon barber of Fleet Street has come to the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. But this version of Sweeney Todd sounds a little different. Attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. His skin was pale and his eye was odd. Devotchka did new arrangements of the music. And true to the Denver band's style, it's a little Slavic, a little indie rock but all while honoring Stephen Sondheim's diabolical score. In fact, Devotchka was obligated to. Sondheim had to sign off. I spoke with the band's Tom Hagerman and Sean King about their foray into musical theater. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Ryan. I want to start with the musical challenge of this for you guys, and I don't mean the arrangements. I mean the playing. 
The original 1979 Broadway version had 26 musicians in the orchestra pit, but there will only be nine for the Denver Center production, including you two, playing 39 instruments. Uh, There are times where you will even be on stage as characters getting your throat slit, lovely thought, uh, and then I guess running back down to the pit. How are you working out the logistics, like the blocking, Sean? It's been with all the help of the incredible team at the DCPA because they know all the ins and outs of making it happen. It's like ballet when it comes together. It was a bit terrifying the first week. It makes it really exciting, though. I mean, especially when even in the first song we get off stage and there's a bit of a dip in the music and then we come back in hitting hard. And I think that's when people go, oh, okay, this is Devotchka in the pit as well. So in the pit and on stage, in other words. How many instruments are you playing, Sean? I've got my hands full. I've got drum kit, castanets, a gong to hit a few times, a chime tree. I've got xylophone and glockenspiel. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Sean's world, it looks like a pawn shop back there. It looks like a pawn shop. How many instruments are you playing, Tom? Me, I'm lucky. I just got my violin, my accordion, and my melodica. Describe so, yeah. a melodica for me. Well, it's like a child's toy, basically. Actually, they play it a lot in like reggae bands and stuff, um, but it's a plastic toy. I, no, you can give it to a kid and they figure it out in a minute. Okay. And you figured it out in a minute, too. It I took, nah, it took me like a week. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this story is dark, really dark. Uh, Benjamin Barker is a Victorian-era barber. A crooked judge exiles him from London so that he can pursue Barker's wife. And the barber returns 15 years later under the alias of Sweeney Todd. And he wants revenge. Eventually conspires with a local pie shop owner, Miss Lovett, to slit clients' throats and bake them into meat pies. Sean, what about that kind of darkness appeals to you artistically? Uh, I think there's an attraction to the revenge story, and I think it's coming into, like, modern culture a lot more right now. I think there's a moment where we're kind of straying away from this, like, hero's journey, Star Wars type of plot, or, like, classic Lord of the Rings, like, that we're gonna, we're gonna see this thing wrap up all nice and pretty, and moving towards, like, especially with series TV, You're seeing stuff, Breaking Bad, Walking Dead, um, where things are just a mess. And it's less of like, what's the journey? And it's more of like, well, what would I do in this situation, I think. And you also don't know who the true protagonist is, sort of. I I don't know if like you're kind of rooting for Sweeney in a way, even though he's this serial killer, basically. Because you're rooting for him because he was an underdog. Right, and some sense of justice in the world. You know, I think the story is a little bit about the 1%, too, you know, which is a theme that keeps coming back. But you have all these people in power and then the sort of underclass that you sort of want to see rise up. Hmm. Um, So there's that aspect, too. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. The thing that Sondheim did, I think, because the the Sweeney Todd tale has been around for a long time. It was like an urban legend in the early 1800s. So I think what Sondheim did was he gave the story some more substance by, by giving the backstory. Like, why did he crack and why was all this happening? And Robert Petkoff, who is playing Sweeney, is doing a incredible job of of bringing that out and you're really drawn to him he's got a great voice he's playing the character beautifully and it's like you are rooting for sweeney there was a barber and his wife 
she was beautiful A foolish barber and his wife She was his reason and his life And she was beautiful And she was virtuous And he was naive I understand there were constraints about how much you could veer from Sondheim's music. Uh, That is, you could inject some of your own creativity, but not so much that it was unrecognizable. Tom, what what did you understand those constraints to be? You know, it's funny because you know that there's this giant company of actor-singers that are going to be rehearsing to a rehearsal accompanist accompanist with a, you know, a book that you can't change the form so dramatically that, that they're going to not recognize the song. And then on top of that, there's a lot of cues and that sort of thing, melodic motifs that they need to sort of be able to sing their role and act their role and know when to come in. So these things kind of have to be there. Greg Coffin, who's the music director, he knows the thing like really well. You know, I mean, far better than any of us. He could sing you every line before even we met him. You know, lines, like. lines upon lines. There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of complex things happening where, like, just like in an opera, where where two people are telling two different sides of the story, and in two bars, they actually sync up and are are harmonizing the same word. So oh, wow. it's a very busy lyric load as well. Right. Or like when, you know, we were listening to The Cure or something, he was probably listening to Sondheim musicals, I think, <laughs> as a kid. But, um. And so were you told at the beginning of this project? Oh, yeah. You can't do anything, you, 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 just anything you want. Well, I mean, he they wanted us to explore it, at, you know, but then, but <laughs> I feel like the more we explored it, the, the more, you know, the kind of, we reined us in a little bit here and there to um, make it really work. So, Well, I understand that you wanted to add a melody from uh, the Devochka song, The Enemy Guns. I did. To one of the pieces in Sweeney Todd, but you were told no. How, how did it feel to hear no? Uh, we're in a different world. We're being we're being plugged into their world and not the other way around. And I think within that, we're still we still have our like DIY attitudes of like, well, let's just do this. And and we realize that there's other things to think about in this process, like sending our version of the score to Sondheim, so he himself or the estate, however, can approve it. So oh, so they'll they'll be listening. They and will be listening. How does that make you feel? I think it's okay. I think um I think even as it is we're still trying to stretch a little bit like I know that we're appealing to an audience that may not be regular theater goers. So I think it's cool to use as much of our flavor and we are doing that with our instrumentation. I mean, it's not that much of a stretch when you look at all the instruments that are played on our records like 100 Lovers or uh Madden Faithful Telling. You look at the what we've played and it essentially plugs right into like what is in the pit and what you're hearing when you're watching this this production of Sweeney Todd. There is a moment where Tom and I we have our first acting roles in this and and we're amazing. So <laughs> as as people in the barber chair. Yeah, we have nonverbal roles here and um but you probably go <laughs> or something like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh you got to come see it. But yeah, it's um it's really fun and but it's still a little bit scary. I think that I think everyone knows what's about to happen to us, but um it's still 
there's some gasps already that have been heard in the audience. And I think that's actually a great time to play the How It Ends theme because everyone knows what's about to happen. Everyone already knows what's about to happen to us and they see that it's us from the band. So we might be able to throw in something like that about... Let me just say, How It Ends is a very well-known Devotchka song that was repurposed, for instance, for... Uh, Little Miss Sunshine and reached an even bigger audience or another audience. Yeah. And so there's a little bit of a, a play there to, 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 to have how it ends when it's ending f- for you guys. If we if we can sneak it in there, we'll we'll try to do it. But I think that's a, one of these like innocuous like nods to the band being in it. The, the thing about changing the score is that there's lyrical and melodic content that you don't want to change. And I think the reason they want to approve it is because they don't want to dilute what they have going on. What about an example of where you think you've achieved the balance really well, where it's as much Sondheim as it is Devotchka? Um, I mean, there's a tune, and it's funny because we do get kind of reined in a little bit, like uh, Little Priest, I think. there's It's kind of an accordion umpa song at its core, I Which think. is also very descriptive of Dvachka. Yeah, we okay. have a lot of that. And what's happening uh, when this song plays? Just set it up for us. She, Mrs. Lovett, finally has this idea that she can um, repurpose their murder victims to serve to the community as... As meat pies. Yes, exactly. It's a pivotal moment. Yeah. Try the priest. Mm. Heavenly. Not as hearty as bishop, perhaps, but then again, not as bland as curate either. And good for business always leaves you wanting more. Trouble is, we only get it in Sundays. Our conversation with Devotchka continues after a break. The Denver indie band has done new arrangements for the Stephen Sondheim musical Sweeney Todd at the Denver Center. Coming up, how the show's dark nature haunts the band. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. More now of my conversation with two members of the Denver band Devotchka, Tom Hagerman and Sean King. They've done new arrangements for Stephen Sondheim's diabolical musical Sweeney Todd, which is at the Denver Center. I understand that uh, Devotchka's lead singer Nick Urata has vivid memories of seeing commercials for the original Broadway production of Sweeney Todd in 1979. This was starring Angela Lansbury. Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street, the new Stephen Sondheim, Harold Prince musical thriller, starring Angela Lansbury. And Glenn Carey. What happened then? Well, that's the play, and he wouldn't want us to give it away. Not Sweeney. Not Sweeney Todd. Urata has said that those commercials gave him nightmares, but that the music stayed with him. How familiar with the show were you guys before taking this on? I think you joked that you'd been listening to The Cure as a kid and not necessarily (laughs) this. 
Geez, I'm surprised Nick showed his age there. <laughs> um, you know, I I mean, I'd seen the Tim Burton version of Sweeney Todd. That was much more recently. Yeah, yeah. which was cool. Uh, that was sort of my first reference to Sweeney Todd, really. But, I mean, I'd played some Sondheim stuff in – I had a gig at Disney World for three months where we had this medleys of various musicals and, and there was some Sondheim stuff in there. And it's What was all, that gig? It was uh, the Disney Grammy All Collegiate Orchestra or something. It was like a um, and you played at Disney World. Yeah, it was at Epcot Center. It was a college program for uh, you know everyone. Like all the serious musicians went to the Aspen Music Festival, and I went to Disney World <laughs> basically. <laughs> so. And what about you, Sean? I'm not going to give you a, a, a real winning answer here, but I I was completely new to the musical and. I still haven't seen the Johnny Depp version and Greg Coffin, our music director was really happy to hear that because they, they feel like the Depp version is, and the Tim Burton um, interpretation is kind of a disgrace to what Sondheim created. And the actors that I'm talking to now as well, they just feel like that's just a different thing. Mm. Like, let's, let's not even reference that because Sondheim is like, he's like the, you know, epitome of complex musicals and and they think that i think everyone in the company feels that that movie just dumbed it down way too much ah and this was the the 07 adaptation i'll say were there musicians though or albums you did listen to during this for inspiration um i mean i think the vibe of what is already inherent in the musical is definitely already what we listen to whether it's like sort of a, a tango vibe or the umpa vibe of like of Piazzolla or um, Tom Waits, there's a mm. lot of Tom Waits in, in there. Well, Tom Waits takes inspiration, I think, from the same subject matter as even you know Nick Cave. You know, I said this before, but and Nick Cave did the murder ballads, right? There's just this DNA, I think, of music that sort of runs from the beginning of time, and I think that. Sweeney Todd contains that same sort of dark DNA that Tom Waits takes from or Kurt Vile or uh, Nick Cave or even Eric Bachman or somebody like this. You know, I, I think that it all is a genetic stew. A genetic stew. I love that description <laughs> of music. It shows me that you really have the long view of this. <laughs> you know, and on another note, I think uh, – and hopefully this doesn't come across the wrong way. But like we, it actually made us – look at our own catalog too when we got into this because the real question is like well why are you hiring us for this what is it about our sound that you care about like how do you identify that so it made us look at ourselves for a minute and say okay well we we think we know why you guys are hiring us for this but we also want to get really specific well i think they knew we would keep that sort of old world vibe which you know the whole thing set in sort of victorian era london you know this, but there have been several other out-of-the-box adaptations of Sweeney Todd, including a progressive metal version that just came out of Washington, D.C. last summer from the Landless Theater Company. He kept a shop in London town
Is there any fear that you are, gosh, I guess the term would be bastardizing or somehow invading the art form? It's funny because we did, that was played as an example of what could be done. And I I thought about that at the time. um, And it's kind of brilliant what they did. But um, I think we stayed far more true to the original than that production with keeping the sound of Dvojka intact as well. Let's go back to the dark nature of this musical's plot line. Um, what was it like working on a project for so long that essentially is about revenge, murder, and, you know, unwitting cannibalism? There's a lot of comedy in it, too. I mean, it's it's the cannibalism side of it, I think, is just so... Throwing that into the story almost seems to, like, lighten it somehow because it's, <laughs> it's so absurd. Uh-huh. It, that, that plot line is so absurd. And Mrs. Lovett's role in the play is to offer some comic relief to this dark tale. So sometimes with the arranging, like months ago when we were arranging this, we I would kind of like ignore some of the lyrical content for that reason. Because I was like, I don't want to be like thinking about that. I want to be thinking about like, okay, should this be, you know, mezzo forte or should this be pizzicato or arco, whatever it is. And um now we can't escape it because we're hearing we're hearing all the lyrics in our head now and we're just like we're doing these extensive rehearsals and now the nightmares are starting because it's Words like what? What what gets stuck in your mind? The beggar woman has a couple lines that I think are just haunting. It's really haunting. Do you remember them? Her like screaming alms alms like you know 15 times during sure. during the play is just kind of haunting. And what's another line? Well, just like, you know, he's like looking at his knives saying like, these are my friends and they will drip rubies and stuff. So there's just these really insidious kind of uh, lines that you need Mrs. Lovett in that context because she's just got this like heavy East London, like Michael Caine kind of accent. And she just has these one-liners that um, she's just playing the crowd the whole time. And the whole thing isn't just this bummer of a production. It's... It's really humorous and it's really dark and it's really dramatic and there's such good singing and acting and the caliber of the production, the set design, the chair is amazing. The all the, of, the barber chair. The barber chair itself yes. is amazing. I don't know who made that exactly. What makes I, it amazing? Well, somebody actually designed it to open and shoot someone down. You know, it like this thing works. Like you could – you know, slash somebody's throat and shove them down this with this chair. If you wished to, if you wish to, the Denver yeah. Center has developed yeah, it. Exactly. This is no, this is no styrofoam prop. This no, is a functioning, functioning works. chair that will slide victims into the abyss. How <laughs> does it feel to 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 reach the smaller theatrical audience and know potentially that it might never be on an album? That's that's a different experience for you guys. It feels like a like an old art form where it's like you you're repeating exactly note for note gesture for gesture second by second like footstep by footstep even like our our route to get up to the stage which all the other actors are doing too because yeah. not not everyone is on the stage for the entirety um 
it's being true to this this like non improvisational repetition that like people had to do back in the day. I mean, and still do in theater. It's just the in contrast to the concert experience that you uh, guys are so used to, where every night can be a little different. Yeah, yeah. and and we and I kind of realize now now that we're like repeating it, I'm like, oh wow, this is this is the same thing. So only, the only thing that's changed is like my attitude that I brought to it tonight. And when you're in a new city, it's like you show up in like you got all the stimulation happening when you're on the road and this is way different because we're like biking home every night and um, going into our regular days and then showing up and everything is exactly the same. So it's like, it's almost getting into this mindset of how did people used to do it? And it's, um, it's different for me for sure. Is it refreshing, Tom? You know, I have to admit part of the reason this really appealed to me was that I always wanted a job that I could ride my bike to play my violin and then go home go back to my bed um and normally being a member of devotchka does not allow for that no i'm not when we were touring all the time so yeah that part is fun for me thanks gentlemen for being with us thanks ryan thank you and what if none of their souls were saved they went to the maker impeccably shaved tom hagerman and sean king of devotchka The Denver band put an indie rock spin on the Sondheim musical Sweeney Todd. It runs through May 15th at the Denver Center. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters.